Hello, and welcome to another episode of the APOG Podcast. I'm host and creator Morgan Bechtel, and today I had the absolute pleasure of talking to former ACOG president, Dr. Jean Connery, about her experience working with the Women's Preventative Service Initiative. So, pop a squat, grab a chair, drive safely if you're listening to this while driving, as we hear from the distinguished Dr. Connery. Hello, Dr. Connery. Thank you so much for being here. Why don't we start by having you um, introduce yourself and your pronouns? Sure. My name is Jean Connery, and my pronouns are she, her. Before we dive into a little bit about why you're here today, why don't you tell the listeners about yourself? I am the chair of the Women's Preventive Services Initiative, but I am also past president of the American College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and currently I am the president of the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics. So I've had both a um, national role with ACOG and now have a global role in women's health with FIGO. I was a practicing obstetrician gynecologist for over 30 years with Kaiser Permanente in Roseville, California, and um, graduated from the University of California at Davis with both medical school and my residency. Wow, that is a very, very impressive resume, and I am so excited to talk to you today. Now, today we're focusing our episode on specifically the Women's Preventative Services Initiative. How did you find yourself involved with that organization? Um, it is an incredible life story for WPSI because it actually came about from my presidential initiative with ACOG back in 2013 to 2014 when I started the Well Women Task Force. What we had observed is that we weren't consistent in recommendations around women's preventive health care. If you saw a, an internal medicine doc, you might get one set of recommendations. If you saw a nurse practitioner, it might be a different. You saw an OBGYN, it's a third set. Women's recommendations or recommendations about women's health were a reflection of our specialty more than a reflection of what was needed for women. So the the start of it really came from our task force. And then we mm. were fortunate enough to have worked with Health and Human Services mm -hmm. and the Health Resources Services Agency on the task force. We had individuals from the Office of Women's Health um, who participated in the task force. And out of that came the opportunity to apply for um, funding. And here we are with Women's Preventive Services Initiative. Wow. So the, and I'm, I'm going to refer to it as WPSI just because that's a little bit of a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> so with WPSI, how do you, how does the organization come to the, the conclusions, the recommendations that they make? I was perusing the website before our interview today. And I mean, you cover such a wide breadth of topics from birth control to urinary incontinence to STIs to interpersonal violence. How did you, A, choose the topics to focus on and how did you create those recommendations? That is such a great question because our origins, um, besides the task force, really are with the Institute of Medicine back in 2011 and the recommendations that came out of the Institute of Medicine about Well Women Health Care that then guided or were used to guide the Affordable Care Act. So our, our history really goes back to legislation oh. that and there were the 
Institute of Medicine, which um, became the National Academy of Medicine, in 2011, released a report, Clinical Practice Guidelines We Can Trust. Mm -hmm. And there were eight recommendations around women's health care. Those eight recommendations then became part Mm -hmm. of the Affordable Care Act, where the Affordable Care Act said, if we truly are going to be able to invest in the health of this country, if we truly are going to be able to see improvements in women's health care, we better recommend or require that insurance companies cover these eight preventive health care steps. And they were diverse, as you saw, you know, contraception, breast cancer screening, cervical cancer screening, HIV, domestic violence. So we've got a list of the oh, first eight okay. requirements or recommendations, I should say, from that 2011 report. Then in 2016, HRSA funded the WPSI. And the first task was to go back to the Institute of Medicine 2011 report and look at it, examine mm-hmm. it, examine it, and update it. So our very first task was to take on those those eight steps. And then we were to look and see, are we consistent? What other recommendations should we be making around women's preventive health care? So the goal is optimum preventive health care for women that will then be covered by most insurance in the United States. Okay. So it's a, and you can totally, totally correct me, but my understanding is before WPSI, there was recommendations from a variety of different uh, institutions. And this organization was created to say, hey, here's the set of recommendations that are, you know, we know are going to be supported and approved by insurance. It's kind of like a central location for recommendations when it comes to to women's health care. Would you would you say that's a fair description or am I completely getting it wrong? No, you've got it right. Um, it, it They are intended to guide clinical practice and coverage of services. Mm, so it's okay. a, it, there's both a legal distinction because of the insurance element with HRSA, Health Resources Services Administration. It's to cover practices around preventive health. Oh, okay. But you're right. The target audience are all the clinicians in the mm-hmm. United States who provide preventive health care for women. And the audience is also women Mm -hmm. so that they know what they should have covered in their checkup. So it's making sure that we understand. And then I don't want to call it the carrot and the stick, but the carrot is that for women, Mm -hmm. it is rewarded that these are covered under their insurance. So we've got the initial um, eight Mm -hmm. steps that came from um, the Institute of Medicine or um, the, I always call it that, the National Academy of Medicine back in 2011. So that provided the framework for the Affordable Care Act. And then in 2016 Mm -hmm. is when we were able to, from 2016 to 2021, and now 2021 to 2026, we're able to look and say, what should we be recommending? And what should and whatever we recommend then should be covered. Mm, okay. Can you tell me about what the process is like as far as going from, okay, we have the recommendations. This is what we should be doing to, okay, now how do we convince insurance companies to say, hey, this needs to be covered. It's a vital part of women's preventative care. So the good part of this is we are clinicians. We are scientists. Mm -hmm. We are recommending, making recommendations based on the evidence of what's important for preventive health. And that's where we put our hat. Mm -hmm. Our hat says politics aside, insurance aside, government aside, we as clinicians are the experts on women's health. And that's why we've got an advisory panel, number one, 
And these are American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, American Academy of Family Physicians, the American College of Physicians, and the National Association of Nurse Practitioners. So we're the advisory panel, along with four members who are from that 2011 group from the Institute of Medicine's um, Committee on Preventive Services. So that's our advisory group. But then the very large group, and these all these titles can get confusing, is a multidisciplinary steering committee. Mm-hmm. And that's where PAs sit. We wanted PAs. We wanted midwives. We wanted nurse practitioners. We wanted per- primary care. We wanted gerontologists and mental health experts. Because we know all of those are considered when we're looking at women's preventive health care. So we take all of them and they are on this very large multidisciplinary steering committee and they provide guidance to us. So the one group says, let's take the Mm -hmm. nominations. Let's make sure that this initiative stays within the scope of what the government is asking. And then the multidisciplinary steering committee says, let's take everything that we're looking at, study the evidence, study all of the recommendations, study all of the research on any given topic in any specific year, and out of this we'll come up with the recommendations. And once we make those recommendations, HRSA reviews it, and if HRSA signs off on it, it's covered for insurance. Oh, okay. So it's a very important step. But what we want to make sure is we are the scientists, we are the clinicians, and that's what's guiding this. And then the separate step is HRSA saying, okay, we see your methodology. We see how thorough you all were. There's a feedback time period. There are actually um, public members Mm -hmm. on this committee too, on the multidisciplinary steering. So it's a pretty, Mm -hmm. very, very diverse group of people. And then if I want to get us more complicated, (laughs) you know, you can have all the strategy and all the guidance in the world. But if you can't disseminate and implement, Mm -hmm. we failed, right? That is uh, so true. So the, the third element is our dissemination and implementation steering committee. And so this is another group. Some of them are insurance representatives, Kaiser Permanente, because I've been there since the start. I said, you know, we should get Kaiser Permanente. We've got other insurance groups. We've got representatives that say, what makes sense in implementing this? How do we go out and suggest, as you're doing here, which is wonderful, that PAs follow this guidance? Because you might not have heard of it from your national organization. Hopefully you have. You've got a fabulous member sitting on our multidisciplinary steering committee. But we want to make sure that we're implementing, whether we do that through public blurbs, Twitter, social media, and through our practices. So big picture, it's putting the science together, getting the recommendation, then presenting it to HRSA and saying, hey, here's here's the evidence, here's what we came up with. And then once that's approved and we have the recommendations that insurance follows, then like you said, it's that information's not useful if it's not being used. <laughs> so then you disseminate that information out to practitioners or you know general platforms for patients to see, and we can get those women screened and hopefully Im- improve their overall health. And, and that's what's so critical about all of what we've done, because on every topic we pick, we come up with probably just a short two or three sentence recommendation. Then we have, a, and that's the part that HRSA adopts. So a very couple sentence recommendation. But then every time we make a recommendation, it gets a little complicated. So we will then mm-hmm. qualify the recommendation or we may um, give some caveats to how what somebody should be looking for. And that is there to give more guidance 
to people, to anybody who is following it. And then we also have a section on um, research. If we make a recommendation, we always see that there are holes in the research. And from those holes, we can come up with some guidance for people or what needs to be done. Now, is there a, a frequency to when you're, like you said, you're reevaluating the data, you're doing more research? How often are you um, presenting this to HRSA? Is it, is it, it's not annually, is it every, you know, five years, 10 years? No, it's annually. Oh, it is annually. Oh. Yeah. So for example, the, the first year back in 2016, the mandate was to review those eight steps, mm-hmm. those, those eight um, coverage items. And then every year after that, the we will take advice from the public, from clinicians, from anybody on what topics we should evaluate. Mm-hmm. We then work with the evidence-based practice center to pull all the research together to get every bit of information. And then we present that to the multidisciplinary committee, make a recommendation. And any particular year, we may pick one or two topics because it's a lot to go through. So over the course of 10 years, we will have come up with a number of topics. But so at the end of every year, Mm -hmm. whatever topic we picked, we send off to HRSA, they review it, look at the process, and then that's covered. Gotcha. Okay. So, for example, fortuitously, you know, I think in some ways, um, we had picked anxiety back, I think, in 2019. Mm-hmm. Oh, that wow! That was uh, that was a good time to pick that topic. <laughs> exactly. We had no idea what 2020 was going to bring us, but in 2019, we picked anxiety. It was submitted by somebody that you know we should be looking at anxiety. We did the evidence-based review. We discussed it. We had a lot of a lot of different con- considerations that went into it. And then mm-hmm. when we released it at the end of the year, HRSA signed off on it. And the publication around anxiety came out in 2020 during COVID. And I will tell you the timing wow. um, was incredible because it was so important in some ways for women to have it validated that anxiety is common mm-hmm. and diagnosis is possible and treatment is effective. It was, like you said, fortuitously, it was the, unfortunately, the perfect thing we needed at a moment where where a lot, a lot of people are, you know, we're struggling, are struggling still. Exactly. And you brought up incontinence. So in, with incontinence, um, I'd have to go back and my, I don't remember which year incontinence came out, but the clinical <laughs> okay. recommendation is very simple. It's three sentences. And that's what HRSA adopts. The Women's Preventive Services Initiative recommends screening women for urinary incontinence annually. Screening should ideally assess whether women experience incontinence and whether it impacts their activities and quality of life. WPSI recommends referring women for further evaluation treatment if indicated. So very straightforward. Women should be um, screened and offered evaluation treatment. Then we've got implementation considerations. And there, it's the nuances. So this is where the DISC might have some, um, take this information and implement it differently. And then there's a third section on research recommendations. So for implementation, we recommend screening women as a preventive service. Factors associated with an increased risk for urinary incontinence include increasing parity, advancing age, and obesity. However, these factors should not be used to limit screening. So it, we take all of the nuances from the recommendation and 
we've got another whole paragraph there. And then the research recommendations are study the incidence and prevalence of urinary incontinence to better identify risk factors over the life course. Assess whether there are racial and ethnic differences, because that is one of the things that comes out very strongly across WPSI. We don't have enough racial differences to say, should we be making different evaluations? Should we be making different types of recommendations? So often our research recommendations would would identify what needs to be done further. To me, it makes a lot of sense. It's it's on almost feels like you 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 have our back. You're saying, hey, here's the research to show this is important and why and what we need to look into. Um, that way, that women can can get the services that they need. That's a, a great observation. And one of the participants in this has been the National Women's Law Center, because if clinicians are having trouble, we want to hear about it because they shouldn't have trouble if they're do it following these recommendations. Now, there's some very specific um, times when they wouldn't be covered, and that's an insurance disclaimer that I could never come up with. I, I mean, that's okay. Somebody would have to figure out what insurance somebody's un- under and whether this is covered. But for the most part, insurance, most insurances are going to cover um, this. Now, again, Medicare does not. Medicare follows a different set of recommendations. Mm, okay, good to know. Yeah, Medicare is separate. So somebody would have to see what Medicare, they're very specific on what the Medicare requirements are. So this is going to be the insurance, uh, other insurance. Gotcha. Okay. So you had mentioned earlier that, you know, we, we make these recommendations, but it's not really worth its snuff unless we can bring it to action. How is WPSI getting this information into the hands of providers, of patients? How are you d- descending the information? I think the most useful tool is our Well Woman chart. And I mentioned at the start that I am president of an international organization. I've handed the international organization the chart and said, you know, we need to make this globally available. It's certainly based on USA mm-hmm. studies, but it is just as pertinent in South America as it is in California. But the Well Woman chart takes women across the lifespan from adolescence through maturity and then takes every type of recommendation we've made and says at what age they should start being screened and what are the elements of screening. So it's a very easy to follow chart. Um, It it can be downloaded onto an individual's phone. We've got charts that are available to put up in exam rooms. And we've got almost any any format that somebody can follow. And also for women, a woman can download it and see, hey, I'm due for a mammogram or I'm due for cervical cancer screening just by looking at the app. So it's very helpful. So I'll attest to the listeners. I will attest. I went and online and checked out the chart and it is fantastic, especially I work in family medicine and I'm kind of the women's health uh, guru uh, of sorts in our office, and I printed this out and I gave it to the to the other providers and said, "Hey, here's a thing to you know. Not every patient can see me. Here are the guidelines." And I'm sure they were you know they're intelligent doctors and nurse practitioners, but it's a, a awesome resource to have in your back pocket. And I'm going to link not only at the WPSI website, but I'm also going to see if I can put specifically the link to the chart so people can access that if they want. And there's some instructions on the website on how to download. Um, I can't call it an app because when it's an app, it has to be updated outside of this. But it is a tool for the phone that is 
automatically updated as we make recommendations. And as people know, those recommendations are annual. So somebody will have their phone, can have their phone updated always. And it's a very useful tool. Well, I know you have multiple clinics, but at least at my clinic, everyone's got it. (laughs) Well, and you know what? so good about what you're saying see you took that and then you brought it i'm sure to physicians and nurse practitioners who weren't aware of it Mm -hmm. so that's that's so powerful that you've done something like that oh well thank you (laughs) now is this is there anything else that you would like listeners to know about wpsi or its initiatives its recommendations well, I think to understand that we do have the separate committee or a, a subset, a, the Dissemination Implementation Steering Committee, we call mm-hmm. it DISC, and they develop the strategies for implementation, um, and they increase healthcare provider and consumer knowledge. So they use a number of different resources. Um, having somebody at the annual PA meeting would be fabulous. Um, having, you know, if you guys have a, a big annual conference, having a table there or having a booth or having somebody with information would be very helpful. Having you there to tell people that you've used it because it's going to be that kind of information, getting it out to everybody. We've shared it with all of the um, the leadership, but you know how everything it can be at the leadership yeah. level and then just waterfall effect does not happen. And I can't emphasize this enough for uh, other, you know, PAs like myself to have a resource that has all of the recommendations because PAs, you know, even yes, you're could be working in OB-GYN and that's everything that you do. But if you're like me in primary care, you know, I do a lot of women's health, but I also do a lot of other stuff. And, you know, to have that information, you know, easily available, you know, that it's all accurate, that there's been a lot of work. (laughs) gone gone into it it's it's a a fantastic resource so um hopefully like you said having this podcast episode out is gonna share this helpful information to more people and i would say somebody like yourself where you are seeing women but in a variety of um how shall i say it in questions when they come in so they may not be coming in for preventive health care but you can look and say you know, yes, you're here for um, a sore knee, but I can see you're due for A, B, and C. Let me give you this and we can schedule. So just that increased awareness that we've got some guidance there, you can quickly look at it. Then it expands the effectiveness of your clinical visit as a primary care provider. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think that's it for all of all of my questions. Thank you so much for um, for taking the time out of your busy day. I know it's, you've done quite a lot of traveling recently, so I appreciate <laughs> you coming on and talking to me. Thank you. It's been kind of a wild three weeks, but if we bring Well Women Healthcare around the globe, then we will have been successful. So thank you very much. Now, after we wrapped, Dr. Conry wanted to talk a little bit more about the the origin stories of WPSI, how she came up with the concept. So take a listen. This actually started back in 2000, probably 2004, because I was asked to give a talk. I was very involved with preconception health. And what I realized with preconception health is 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. They're surprises. So you can do all the preconception care counseling you want. You basically miss 50% of the population. So unless you step back and say, let's improve the health and well-being of all women of reproductive age, you fail 50% of the time. 
So that was my original work, my aha moment somewhere between 2004 and 2008 and 10 was, you know, we're trying to do all these preconception care guidelines, but 50% of the time we're going to fail. So I, I talked with colleagues at HRSA. We said, why don't we model this after Bright Futures, which is the pediatrics view. How do you take care of children across their span of care? And we said the only way we'll get at improving preconception health is if we really focus on well women health care. So that's why I took that on as my um, task force project, that we were going to look at well women health care, and that formed the guidance and the start for this. And HRSA liked, and I had HRSA Health and Human Services members, I think it was the um, Maternal Child Health Bureau sitting on my task force. And that's when we started brainstorming in 2013. We should model this after Bright Futures. And here we are. Here we are. Well, that wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode all about the Women's Preventative Services Initiative. I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Connery for taking the time to sit down and chat with me about this very important organization. I'll include links to WPSI and the other helpful resources mentioned in the episode on our website, www.the-apog-podcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.net. And as always, you can listen to this episode along with all of our episodes from season one on APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things that they're up to. And lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really does make a difference in our visibility, and it would mean the world to me. That's it. That's the end of my pandering. As always, stay safe. Tell someone you love them and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye.